All right. You know what that means. You are listening to the Mystery of Parenthood. I'm Trey Cashin, and I'm with Thaddeus Romanski, and Dennis is over there on the board. But uh, we're going to begin with our prayer, as always. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Lord God, from you, every family in heaven and on earth takes its name. Father, you are love and life. Through your Son, Jesus Christ, born of woman, and through the Holy Spirit, the fountain of divine charity, Grant that every family on earth may become for each successive generation a true shrine of life and love. Grant that your grace may guide the thoughts and actions of husbands and wives for the good of their families and of all the families in the world. Grant that the young may find in the family solid support for their human dignity and for their growth in truth and love. Grant that love, strengthened by the grace of the sacrament of marriage, may prove mightier than all the weaknesses and trials through which our families sometimes pass. Through the intercession of the Holy Family of Nazareth, grant that the church may fruitfully carry out her worldwide mission in the family and through the family. We ask this of you, who is life, truth, and love with the Son and Holy Spirit. Amen. Holy Family of Nazareth, pray for us. St. John Paul II, pray for us. Blessed Mother Mary, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Hey man, all right. Why did you uh, Why did you add uh, the Blessed Virgin today? Well, today Trey? today's a spe- I mean, we're taping on on the in the Feast of the Incarnation, um, and so there's that. And then, of course, today is the day that um, Pope Francis is consecrating the world, each of us, uh, and then specifically, especially Russia and Ukraine to the Immaculate Heart of Mary. That's right, as per the. Um, uh, the Fatima apparitions, mm-hmm. and and particularly given this time, mm-hmm. uh, so we thought Thaddeus has been leading or in a group that's been studying uh, facilitating facilitating, facilitating. Uh, Vatican II documents, and we thought that in one of the constitutions, Lumen Gentium, um, there is a chapter dedicated to Our Lady, and um, and so thought that given. The incarnation and given um, the consecration that's going on today, that that would be a fitting mm-hmm. uh, topic. Yeah. Um, can I can I jump in with a quick plug? Sure. If you're not a part of that uh, document study series, we're going to probably be running another version of it, another series of it after Easter. And if you want to listen in on what's going on now, those discussions, you can check out our new podcast channel, Red Sea Presents, where Deacon Mike Beauvais and I, every week, we are doing the Deacon in the Dock podcast, where we reflect back on the previous week's conversations and give our, our thoughts and reactions. So check that out wherever fine podcasts are uh, are made available. Deacon in the Dock podcast. Awesome. And, and if you haven't really spent some time reading those documents, particularly the con- the four constitutions, um which I know that's what what y'all have been focusing on yep. because that gets to the heart of the. We're wrapping up Lumen Gentium today, as a matter of fact. Right, which is which is the Constitution on the Church, mm-hmm. um, and so um, I, there's many misunderstandings. Um, the great thing about the Vatic, the documents of Vatican II is they're replete with uh, scripture references, with clarifications, and um, and references to the church fathers. References to church fathers. It's it is a a great to the Council of Trent. Right. Believe it or not. I mean, regardless, they've they've got they've they they are they're full of things that would allow each of us to grow deeper in our understanding of the church. From Vatican II, as um, that is, I'm sure can attest to. You know, was meant not to be a uh, one regarding doctrine, but more importantly, was meant to be on on the how the faith is conveyed and to make it bring it forward mm-hmm. to where people can more greatly understand it. I, I yeah, it's a really I would really recommend those of you out there if you haven't read it to read Pope John the Twenty Third's opening address to the Council. He's the Pope who called it in uh, 1959. He called for it and then it opened in 1962. But all throughout that address, he repeatedly says, this is the doctrine that you bishops know. This is the doctrine that's 
been constantly taught and held by the by the the church. It's the deposit of faith, and we're we're looking at how to bring it forward to the world in a in a new way. Right, and and I and I think but that, the teaching is constant. Right. So so what we're going to talk about is not some new teaching about Mary, but rather. Uh, a laying out of how how it's to be understood, yeah. brought forward, and that's the insight of um, Saint John Henry Newman. At this point, is is really important in the, in this process too of of Vatican II. You know, his insights about the development of Christian doctrine that right. um, Christian doctrine uh, it doesn't change over time, but the Church does come to greater. Um, appreciation and understanding of its of its truths as time goes on right right and the the holy spirit jesus promises the holy spirit who is running the church so to speak uh at at the spiritual level right um is going to lead us into all truth right um so not new but maybe, but brought forward or further unpacked by the church. I think it's important that the church doesn't ever come up with new stuff. Its its role is to be the guardian of the faith, and so typically when things are challenged or misunderstood, that's when the church will step up. And obviously, Vatican II was a time when it was believed that um, that we needed to bring forward the doctrine that had already been taught by the church, um, and so. Uh, I think it's. I think another cool thing about it is John the twenty third called it. He died soon after Pope Paul the sixth became the pope overseeing it. John Paul the uh, second, Archbishop Carol Wotiwa was was there, one of the key theologians that was involved, right. as well as Cardinal Ratzinger, right. uh, Pope Benedict, um, who who came along afterwards, mm-hmm. and so. Um, I know John Paul. Well, I mean, if you know the history of it, Paul the Sixth died um, after the after the the, Vat- the Vatican Second Vatican Council had come to an end. But then John Paul the First was elected and was around for roughly thirty three days, mm-hmm. I think, something like that, before he died. Nineteen seventy eight, the year of the three popes. Right, and then and then John Paul the Second carried the the name because. That name is meant to reference Vatican II because John Paul II saw the implementation of Vatican II as being um, the key role at this moment in time for the church. And so he took the name that John Paul I uh, said, and that's why he's John Paul II. John Paul I took because of John the Twenty Third and Paul the Sixth. Right. And so anyway, um, these are important documents for sure. Um, in in terms of the church now, and so its implementation is going. And, and typically, historically, it takes decades for any um, council. Was it the? I think it's the twenty first council, maybe. If you go back, I believe I, I've heard I've heard differing numbers. Some sometimes I've heard twentieth council. Sometimes I've heard twenty first council. Yeah, but uh, but but that's how many roughly around twenty. Councils have been held mm-hmm. um, since the beginning of the church. The first one is recorded, I believe, in Acts 16, maybe. There was a council of Jerusalem mm-hmm. where they talked about whether, um, whether circumcisions. people had circumcisions. And, and whether uh, Gentiles would have to kind of take on all of um, Jewish, if they would basically have to become Jews before they could become Christians. Christians right. Yeah. And so anyway, that was the first one and there've been multiples and a lot of, a lot of those are referenced in, in this, mm-hmm. even up to the council of Trent. Mm-hmm. So anyway, um, that's a lot of background. Uh, but I think the first, you know, the first thing on with regard to, um, our lady, is it's, it's well i have a i have i have a great quote to start us with if you don't okay, sure, if you don't ahead. mind it's chapter 8 of vatican of vatican 2's yeah. uh constitution on the church yeah lumen gentium so it's the very last chapter of that of that constitution so this is paragraph 53 right at the right at the bottom of it and i think this is a magnificent sentence that you know you can you can speak to or we can discuss for a little bit um 
says she she is hailed as a preeminent and singular member of the church and as its type and excellent exemplar in faith and charity. What is the Second Vatican Council getting at there about the the Blessed Virgin Mary? Well, you know, it it, it speaks to the fact that we're 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 signs as human beings, we're signs and of course Mary is a human being as opposed to um, Jesus being a divine person. Mm-hmm. Um, and so um, not a human being, but with a human nature is Jesus. So she's like us in all ways, except we believe she's sin. You know, she's sinless. She was conceived, conceived without, sin. without sin and remained without sin throughout her, her life. And so she's the exemplar as we all, it points back to, the church is, likes to see that what it believes about itself and what it believes about what we're capable of is always is going to point to humanity, not as mere concept, but as concrete, somebody we can point to and look. And so she becomes kind of the, not kind of, she becomes the image of what the church is, a human institution mm-hmm. with a... um unique union with the Holy Spirit. Um, and so she becomes the kind of the figure that we point to and say, okay, that's a real person who lived in real time, who um, exemplifies and and makes concretely present what we're called to as, as human beings, mm-hmm. since she is like us um, in all things except for sin. Yeah, you know, now St. Maximilian Kolbe, to my understanding, I think was the saint who really developed this idea of because the Blessed Virgin Mary says that her name is the Immaculate Conception, she says, I am the Immaculate Conception when she answers Bernadette's question at Lourdes. And he uses that to say that she is married. She's in this spousal Relationship. relationship with the Holy Spirit, right. right? That's her spouse is the Holy Spirit. And therefore, does does that make it proper? Does that help us understand the church's relationship with the Holy Spirit? That if Mary is in a spousal relationship with the Holy Spirit and she's the icon of the church, I think that's what this is saying here. And my understanding was that's why this was made the last chapter of the constitution on the church is because she is the icon of the church. Does that help us understand her, the church's relationship with the Holy Spirit? I think so. If I can get back the church in Vatican II actually um, talks about the, talks about the church as being both a human and a divine institution. Right. And, and, because of that, um, there is a unique union between humanity. The difference is, as is pointed out by Vatican II as well, is that it is full of sinners. Right, right. <laughs> and is that one, I think close to, it says it's the church is at once holy and continually in, needed, in need of um, conversion and work because it involves humans. I think that's good news because last time I checked, I mean, I'm, I'm a sinner <laughs> and the fact that we, the fact that the church would welcome that. So there is, I think some, certainly some connection there um, between that. I th- obviously she was held um, and protected from sin as a result of what right. her son accomplished for her on the cross. Right. Um, not by any, work separate from the grace that was gained by her son on the cross. And what's what's also good news is that if we look in the, the chapter previous to this in Lumen Gentium, chapter seven is on the eschatological nature of the church. So the, the looking towards the end times. Right. And we know that at the end of time, there's not going to be a church suffering anymore, and there's not going to be a church militant anymore. There's only going to be the church triumphant in heaven. And in, and in, and at that point, correct me if I'm wrong, at that point, the church will 
um, kind of meet its final destiny that Mary as an icon has foretold, right? Because there will be there will no be no more sinners right. in the church. Right. I was talking with, point. with with a good friend the other day, and and he was pointing out that it, that in heaven, and certainly at the end of the time. We will see God as He is, as John right. as John right. says, and at that point we will have complete, still have complete and total free will in heaven. But we will be so aware there will be no veil; the veil will be removed, and we will know He, God, the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is the only real choice. <laughs> I mean that that it would be ridiculous at that point. So all right, sinfulness well, we, we and all veil. Right, we won't have that division in ourselves between our will and our intellect. They'll be they'll be perfectly aligned again as because they were we'll before see, the fall. Right, because we'll see we'll see God as He is, right. and and that will forever draw us um, closer to Him. And and what, so we'll be choosing freely, um, but we'll know that there's no other real choice other than right. other than that which is what mary will be choosing will be, charity will, perfectly will, will be, be choosing exactly. the good the true and the beautiful perfectly perfectly without without any stain so um so yes and that's what uh she experienced she experienced it on on this side of the veil right. um so she's a foretelling of that of that state that we will be in god willing god willing uh, right <laughs> in heaven it did when we we're in heaven, and right. so that's that is great. And there's so much. Let me throw you a curveball now. Uh oh, I'm not good at curveballs, but but I'll take it. Um, so it's coming. This little bit that we've already discussed. Okay, so how do we make that uh, appreciable, or how do we take that into the domestic church? How do we? What do we do with that for our for our children as parents? Well, so. Uh, this is that that tension that I think always in in the fullness of Christianity um, has always got to be there, and that is this that Vatican II also goes to great lengths to say that Jesus both reveals God as He truly is, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but in that revelation reveals man to Himself, and so He's called the perfect the perfect human that's uh, Gaudium et Spes 22 that it, right so the, the, the perfect the perfect human mm-hmm. and and that that's what we're called to so we're called like like Jesus says in Matthew 548 at the end of at the end of his um the sermon on the mount it's he says be perfect as your father in heaven is perfect St Thomas Aquinas I believe uh I'm accurately Reflecting him, we'll let it slide. In, in saying that, in saying that, he said that that the Lord does not give um, commands; that He does not provide the means to strive for the, those demands. So, mm. the the tension is: we are all sinners; we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God, as as Paul says. But we're called to that to that perfection, which we'll only know fully when we. God willing or in heaven, well, maybe us willing, honestly, God wills that we all be saved. True. true. <laughs> Paul says to Timothy, he, he, he wills that we all, that all men be saved, but, um, or he desires that. Um, so it's something with us cooperating with, with what we know to be true. And so what that, what that means is we have to hold intention. We are sinners yet we're called to this perfection, which we won't fully realize until, we cross over um, the great divide, so to speak, when we when we die, uh, or when Jesus comes again. But in the interim, while we live here, I think it's important to tell our children that we have to hold intention. We are sinners, yet we are called to this holiness. Again, that's chapter five of of Lumen Gentium. We're, we're all called to this union with God that is made perfectly present as a human being in the person of Mary, our lady. And so we are meant to try to empty ourselves of sin. So the, so Christ has left us with 
the sacraments, which are the objective means by which he's given it. There, there, there are other ways that it can be done, but, but objectively, if we know as good Catholics that those are what he's left, we can trust that they're there. So confession, recognizing our sinfulness, but our call to you, Jesus has left that as is, as is taught at the end of John when Jesus breathes on them and says, the, the sins that you forgive are forgiven and those that you retain are retained. That empty our, that provide us the opportunity to, to work on and provide us the grace to overcome those things that keep us from union with God. And then the perfect image, the kind of pinnacle of, of that is the Eucharist, which is given to us um, to, it's, it's called Holy Communion. What is communion? Union with. What is holiness? Union with. And therefore, in that most holy of sacraments, in that, in that, the source and summit of the Christian life, we get a foretaste, uh, so to speak, of that of that end. So, I guess in terms of teaching and both our understanding and handing it on to our kids, we should always hold those intention. We are always sinners, but we're called to perfection, and God gives us the sacraments as the, for the graces that we need to overcome that sin. And he also provides the means of union on this side of the veil with Jesus and through, through him, with him and in him with the father and the Holy spirit to have union with the Trinity. Would you say in your experience that instilling or having our children develop a a love for the blessed Virgin falls into that uh, old adage of something that's better caught than taught that if they, if they see you and your, and your wife with a, with a devotion to the blessed Virgin and a, a love for her, that that's, that's what will develop that well, in them? Think, or is it, is it, does it come really through explaining her role? In as, 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 salvation? as good Catholics should always say it's both. And um, if you teach, but then don't show concretely, I mean, we're humans. we, we learn by seeing, by touching, by experiencing, by feeling. That's how that's how our intellect is. That's how we receive it, albeit veiled, mm-hmm. you know, as if in a mirror. But but so, I don't think that either of those can be left alone. If you have great devotion, it certainly can be taught by the by by that example. But there should be some communication. It's just like the it's like the gospel. I mean, you can say I live a Christian life. And, and yes, people can see that and go, wow, he, you know, he's got something different than me. And that's a great evangelical tool, but to not use words. That's why, why I don't believe that what is often taught is, you know, uh, preach always when, and, and use words when necessary. I I've always said that that's been misinterpreted. I mean, I don't say really, it anyway, but, but, but even there's nothing really wrong with that comment. As long as I think it's properly understood, it's yeah. often used, but, but the reality is that we can't always be talking. I mean, I, my wife would probably differ when, with regard to me, <laughs> but, <laughs> but we can't, we can't always be talking. Uh. So to preach always means we have to be living that faith out. Right, so, right. so, but, but when it's, when it is necessary, which it's always necessary, but at appropriate times to be able to convey that, particularly since, since Catholics and Orthodox, so there's, there, there are other Christians besides, besides Roman Catholics or, or even Eastern Rite Catholics that have devo- strong devotion to Mary. Lutherans started out that way, actually. Lutheran, absolutely. Luther didn't touch the doctrine surrounding Mary exactly initially. so so it's not it's it's been something and again what really important is is to understand and this is just another aside the devotion to Mary is a prerequisite or something that we as somebody's trying to live fully the faith the Christian faith um, is a big T tradition as in something that can't be set aside as unnecessary. Yeah. But it's but but the the means of that devotion, whether it's the rosary or whatever are 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 smaller tea traditions where cuz there are some 
people with devotion to Mary that don't pray the rosary. As Roman Catholics, it's it's central, but I think it's just important to know that devotion to Mary is something that's kind of seen universally as something that is a um, part of being a Christian um, because of what of what she did. Um, so I don't know if that answers your question. Yeah, but. picking up just on your last point about the uh, veneration of Mary and understanding and growing in devotion to her role in salvation is a prerequisite for a Catholic faith. The first, after the introduction, the first section in chapter 8 in Lumen Gentium is the role of the Blessed Mother in the economy of salvation, and, and the Vatican Council goes through in good good detail just showing how she was a part of Jesus's saving saving mission. Right. And she's she's the kind of somewhat the first fruits of I I'm that's a catechism so I could be <laughs> corrected on that but she's she's actually the realization of of what it, what complete you know what salvation in its at very end is. Yeah, this is really be. beautiful. It says Number 56, the Father of Mercies willed that the Incarnation should be preceded by the acceptance of her who was predestined to be the mother of his Son, so that just as a woman contributed to death, so also a woman should contribute to life. Right, and I, and I don't—they may quote it here, but, but, but the idea of, of the knot that was created by Eve was undone. I think it's St. It might be St. Irenaeus, um, but but early, early, early in the church, there was already this understanding that you have it. They do, they do quote it here at the end of uh, 56. Hence, not a few of the early fathers gladly assert in their preaching, quote, the knot of Eve's disobedience was untied by Mary's obedience. What the Virgin Eve bound through her unbelief, the Virgin Mary loosened by her faith. Right, and so... So there's this, there's this Ooh, understanding. Take that to the bank. But so, but remember, remember, and it's very important to understand. She is not meant to be worshipped, and and any any outward sign that somebody would would think that we're doing that is is not true. We venerate her. We hold her in highest esteem of all humans who've come before us because of her cooperation with that grace. And because of that cooperation of the grace, as opposed to what Eve did in the village, she's the undoing. She's the undoing of what was accomplished by Satan and by the ascent of Adam and Eve in the garden. And so she's held in veneration because she cooperated and she's held as an example because that's exactly what we're all called to, that there is this provenient grace, this grace that God gives, which he's always calling us. But there, but there is, as, as Catechism says and the Church teaches, our free response to that, which is what she had to do. Um, yeah, there all, there's also something marvelous in the Blessed Virgin Mary that takes us back to what Dave Erebum, that's the Constitution on the on Divine Revelation, makes stresses that we read the Old Testament and the New Testament alongside one another. The right. Old Testament informs the New Testament. The New Testament reveals the, right. the Old Testament. And that's, that's beautiful, that coherence there between Eve and Mary. Right. And, and, and that's important to note that I, it looks like it is from St. Irenaeus, who would have been in the 200s. So this is not some new, <laughs> some new teaching. This is something that has been taught um, from its inception. Um, and so that's why the church in its understanding of grace, grace is limited by our sinfulness. So our sinfulness kind of blocks or, or undermines the full application of all grace to us. Again, I, I'm not being precise here. So if any theologians are out there that might quibble with my words, you know, please bear with me and I'll, I'll beg, but but this idea that sinfulness kind of mortal sin would kind of block the grace that God is always pouring out to us, um, venial sin, the non deadly sin, um, 
as is referenced uh, in, I think, the end of John, um, is is something that at least diminishes its full impact. So when the when when the on this feast of the Annunciation, when we hear Gabriel's call, say, "Hail, full of grace," that that is to be full of grace would necessarily mean completely full <laughs> of grace would necessarily mean there cannot be any sin there. And that's from a biblical standpoint where that comes from too, that that the angel Gabriel who sits there to say hail and then full of grace, hail a sign of veneration straight from heaven (laughs) um, and full of grace being that, that um, kind of message that to be full would mean that there wouldn't be something limiting it's it's impact so um so now you go on to chapter or section three on the blessed virgin and the church number 60 starts out with there is but one mediator as we know from the words of the apostle for there is one god and one mediator of god and men the man christ jesus who gave himself a redemption for all the maternal duty of Mary toward men in no wise obscures or diminishes this unique mediation of Christ, but rather shows his power. Right. And, and so that's critical to understand. Um, we, like our Protestant brothers and sisters, will quote 1 Timothy 2, 5 through 6, which is, there's but one mediator. There's only one who's gained us salvation. There's only one who has redeemed humanity and redeemed us and allowed us the opportunity to get to heaven one that the person of Jesus Christ period but our understanding of his the immense infinite graces that are gained by what he accomplished through his passion death and resurrection and his ascension into heaven through that the graces that are poured out are meant to be received and that our cooperation with those graces allows us to become more than we would be, in fact, to realize to the extent that we empty ourselves of ourselves, as John the Baptizer, you know, as John the Baptist says, I must decrease, he must increase. Well, that's the same for us. Mm-hmm. We must decrease. Our will, our plans, our everything must not only decrease, eventually go away, and the, that the will of God would fully be made manifest in us and through us. Mm-hmm. We're sinful. Mary is is the shows the great power that what of what he's accomplished. So she is a she is so so a, a jewel that that is pointed to saying, see what Christ has gained for us, what he has done for us, and what is capable, what we're capable of to the extent that we decrease our own will, our own plans, and allow God to work in and through us. Yeah, just as a little addendum, I mean, I went to Jesuit high school. We prayed every morning after announcements um, that we would glorify God through our thoughts, words, and actions. And, And it's very much a part of the Protestant Christianity that I've come encounter with of for Protestant Christians to pray something very similar that they glorify God or that everything that they're doing is for God's glory. And what the church is saying here is that par excellence is the blessed Virgin Mary. Her life is that glorifying God of bringing God, I've God's s- glory full f- to, to the max. I've said, I've, I've right? said this cause I had a, I had a professor who talks about our understanding of God's, of God's grace and its power. It, it's, it's ability to change us. Not by our own action, but by his action and our cooperation with that action. And so I think one of the things he, he talks about is about football coaches. And what I, what, I, what I point to is, say, look at Nick Saban, for example. And this would be all the people who have ended up going to that school and receiving instruction from him and guidance and in, inside of his plan this is again you know falls well short of what we're talking about here but i think it points to it all those people who've ended up in the nfl who have ended up being all americans who've ended up being does that diminish 
if you point to them, does that diminish the head coach or does that actually point to his greatness? Right. And I think everybody would agree that there's no diminishing of Nick Saban as maybe the greatest college football coach, well, not maybe, I'm, as the greatest college football coach ever. That's probably what Jimbo told him after the Aggies beat him last right. year. Is like, I just, <laughs> I just pointed to what a great coach you are, man. Right, exactly. Well, and to beat him, of course, that would never happen with, with Jesus, but but to beat him is to beat the best. But But – that points to so those all those all Americans, all those people who've gone to the NFL because they have gone there, and why people choose to join if they have the opportunity to join Alabama and have in the past is because of him and what he and his program actually help accomplish in them, right? For their greater good, but it also glorifies him. It glorifies him. So that's the way, albeit falling short of what is really happening, but that's a way of understanding the way we do. We we point to look at all of all or all Americans, and the greatest ever of those all Americans is Mary. Right. I mean, she says so herself in her Magnificat, exactly. right? Exactly. And I was looking it up because I wanted to quote it pr- precisely, but she her. says, my soul proclaims the greatness of the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has looked with favor on his lowly servant. From this day, all generations will call me blessed. The Almighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. I mean, that's exactly what we're we're talking about. Right, and and that's that's our understanding of why she can say that prior to Christ dying on the cross is that he that those graces that he is going to gain are applied to her prior to that, right? And, right, and so right. it's what he's done. She calls it's his, it's her savior who has done great things for her not her doing great things all generations will call me blessed not because of what i've done but because of what he's done mm-hmm. and and that's a proper understanding of why Kena, we venerate Kena, what does she say she says do whatever he tells you always she's always going to do it. that's that's why in devotion to her often people will say I want to do what he wants to do. Help me, <laughs> Mary, to do that. Right. Show me, show me the way because you have walked the way as a human being in following him perfectly. Number 62, it continues, and this is very appropriate for recording on the Feast of the Annunciation. This maternity of Mary in the order of grace began with the consent which she gave in faith at the Annunciation and which she sustained without wavering beneath the cross and lasts until the eternal fulfillment of all the elect. Well, thank, so so if you ever get the chance to read Mother of the Redeemer, which was, a, I think, an apostolic letter, I'm not sure it was a, um, higher than that, that John Paul II wrote, there's a section in there where he talks about the, the, the amount of faith that would be required, the perfection of faith, because she is sitting at the foot of the cross from a human perspective, from a material, the utter end of any human hope of the accomplishment of salvation. It, 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 from every aspect you could look at it, it looks like utter failure. He is completely been defeated Mm -hmm. yet she still sits there at the foot of the cross and says yes to what god is doing you know my will might be him come down off the cross my will might be do it some other way but she's completely turned over this is this is your will and like Abraham said, you know, or Jesus talks, I mean, he, he can do anything. And therefore, the amount of faith that would be required is exhibited. I mean, that, 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 that fullness of faith is exhibited in that moment up until his death and, and even the laying of him into her arms um, following that, which is why, you know, I love the passion of the Christ because of of how that relationship between him, between Jesus and Mary is, and also her great faith in the face of utter disappointment, 
seemingly utter failure <laughs> and yet still always being there. Mm-hmm. And so that's what we're called to, you know, what we see and what we experience and what we go through day to day without faith can be overwhelming. It can look like utter failure, but we have to have hope. We have to have faith and ultimately have to love God enough to say, whatever's happening, I accept. That's not easy to do, but she is that perfect example of somebody who accepts what looks like utter failure. And that's amazing. But that whole thing is that that whole document by John Paul II talks about how love is, perf- you know, is perfected in her because there's no waiting. So the, you know, at the end of the, at the end of the Annunciation, the angel says in your cousin, Elizabeth is six months, who is called barren is six months pregnant basically. And she, it, I think it says immediately she heads there in faith, hearing from an angel, <laughs> not obviously not having heard that that had happened. And she goes in faith, even that action of leaving where she is to go be with Elizabeth is an act of faith, mm-hmm. which is what followed by uh, St. Elizabeth's welcoming of her, the Lord of my, the mother of my Lord, which again points us back to that. The fact that John the Baptist in her womb leaps at the voice of Mary in the presence of Jesus. Mm-hmm. There's so much beauty there, but, but, but it's, you know, our family thing is trust God, do good, and he will act. And I think she's the perfect example of that. She trusts him, do good, go see Elizabeth, stay at the foot of the cross at, at, at the, what looks like the utter, utter defeat of any mission that he might accomplish and trust him, do those good things and then wait for, and God does act in the resurrection, in the leaping of the womb, in the words of Elizabeth, which confirms what she's just heard. At Pentecost. At Pentecost, when she's there with the apostles. Right. So th- those are all, those are all examples of that, of that faith um, that are important. So again, I think it's so important for us to understand when and this is something that came up in a conversation with one of my sons regarding his conversation with Protestant regarding calling her the mother of God. And the the discussion went something like this. Well, he's, she's the mother of Jesus, not the mother of God. Well, again, that's why that definition is there for two, for at least two reasons. One is pointing to the fact that while there are three persons in the most Holy Trinity, father, son, and Holy spirit, there is one God, one all right, so we can say, if we can say it about Jesus, we can say it about God. Uh, and, and, and therefore, to call it the mother of God. Yeah, isn't and, that the most basic syllogism? Jesus is God, Mary is Jesus' mother, therefore Mary well, so is the, the, the mother flip of God. Side of it, the flip side of it, it reveals something about our humanity, which is that we are persons. Right. And persons are this integrated whole of what makes us a person, which is matter and a soul body and, and soul a, a body Matter and soul and, and you've got and you've got um Jesus which you would add divinity to it but in but this unity of that is you know there were heresies that said well she's the mother of his humanity mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. well that's separating that's separating a person into two things which uh, we won't get into this but it's why we have i think that that what we believe has impact on practice what we believe extends into other things and if there can be some separation between our body our our outward or the matter and our inside where we could say something different about ourselves than what what the outward appearance is that is a foot in our society all right then then we're then we're dividing a person and so jesus came to reveal to us that that there is no division of that. When Jesus says, this is my body given for you, he's not saying this is just the flesh that you see. He's saying, this is me. 
the entirety of, of me, which is why we say body, blood, soul, oh. which is his humanity, and divinity, mm-hmm. which is he is that whole person. So we can't divide him. And, and, the, and the definition of mother of God that happened, I guess, in the Council of Ephesus in the 400s was to point to this, we can't divide Jesus as something separate from the Trinity, and we can't divide Jesus from himself and have it just be his humanity. We believe in the integral relationship between what we see and the spiritual side as a whole. So we are a, we are persons. Um, anyway, I think that's a very yeah, I important think thing. What right you're now. pointing out is that there's, this is just one example of how a strong um, Marian theology, a strong Mariology actually keeps us tethered to the truth about Jesus keeps us tethered to the truth about his incarnation and passion, death and resurrection. And it keeps us tethered to what's true about the church. Absolutely. And that, and that's, and that's why it's critical to have access to the fullness of the truth, because when we deviate from it, it has an impact on society. It has an impact on culture. It has an impact on the way that we see things. So theology matters. What, what we believe about God and what we believe about what he's revealed about himself and what we believe as Christians about what he's revealed about us as humans, because he reveals man to himself, impacts how we look at others impacts how we look at what's going on in the world. And if we don't hold to those truths, then we spin off into uh, errors <laughs> that impact others. And so that's why theology matters. And that's why a proper understanding of us calling her the mother of God is necessary to understanding who Jesus is and what he's revealed about God and what he's revealed to us about what it means to be human. I think there's a beautiful uh, section here at the end in section five that speaks directly to uh, the consecration that is, is taking place, I think still. And in number 69, the council wrote the entire body of the faithful pours forth instant supplications to the mother of God and mother of men that she who aided the beginnings of the church by her prayers may now exalted as she is above all the angels and saints intercede before her son in the fellowship of all the saints until all families of people, whether they are honored with the title of Christian or whether they still do not know the savior may be happily gathered together in peace and harmony into one people of God for the glory of the most holy and undivided Trinity. Right. And so she, she asked as, 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 when she asks, it's his mother. <laughs> he still has his human nature. So when, when it's his mm, mother, it's mm, his mother. Mm. Just like, you know, uh, and, and what would a perfect Jewish son do but honor what his mother? Now, his mother, knowing God and seeing God face to face, would never ask for anything that wasn't consistent with God's will. So if we turn it over to Mary, it's safe to say that she's only going to ask for us, what God wills. I, I think it's important. I just want to point this out because I, and I, I hate to end it with this, but I, I do think it's important because I think on the flip side in, in that previous section, and I'm, this is a different translation than yours, but the church strongly urges theologians and preachers of the word of God to be careful to refrain as much from a false as, as exaggeration as from too summary an attitude of considering the special dignity of the mother of God. And so there's, that's in 67 um, of, of this mm-hmm. document. And so again, there's this got to be this perfect tension between we, we hold her in the highest esteem, but she's still just a woman. And there are problems sometimes when people over-exaggerate as much as there are problems when they, when they diminish who she is. And so we have to hold that tension as good Catholics of, knowing who she is and what she, how she's been used by God to help reveal to us more about who Jesus 
is and why we can trust in him as our sole mediator between man and God, as the one who has saved us. And so I, again, I only point that out so that we can know that the, that a proper understanding is a, is a good balance of that tension, which always is where um, the truth resides, <laughs> always in this tension between two things that seem to be diametrically opposed, but holding them together up. And that, that leads us to that middle ground. All heresy ends up being an over-exaggeration of one thing to the exclusion of another, oftentimes because it's easier to understand. <laughs> Virtue is a median. Yeah, so it's it's in there. So anyway, I, I hope, I, mean, I can't believe that is over. Um, great, but, great conversation. But I, and but folks, I, I mean, if you could see... Trey's well-worn copy of his council Vatican Council documents book. Oh, I mean, it, it has been beat, thumbed through, beaten to to a pulp. But um, I, I would encourage everybody to go get it and read it, so you can actually hear and read what the text says, not what other people are saying about the text. What does the church actually say? So we're we're at the end. Thank you, Thaddeus. Thank you, Dennis. Um, thank you all for listening. God bless you guys. Remember, always pray parent with a purpose and prepare for God to amaze you. He always does. Always. God bless you guys. Pray for us. We'll be praying for you. God bless. Bye. From the cross to the grave in heaven.